And everybody gets it back again. Don't take no mess out the rose garden. Jesus, they're on fire. They're what we desire. The men in black can handle it. Other teams can scrabble it. How they win that game today. There's just one thing you can say. Welcome back to the Rose Garden Report podcast. I'm Sean Hyphen, the author of the Rose Garden Report newsletter, which you can subscribe to at rosegardenreport.com. Free and paid subscriptions are available. If you missed any of my coverage from Santa Barbara last week during training camp, you can go and get a paid subscription, catch up on all that stuff. And, you know, the Blazers have their first preseason game. We're recording this on a Monday. They play tomorrow against the New Zealand Breakers, which is uh, Rayon Rupert's uh, former team, notably. So that's going to be the first real look at, I don't know what the rotations are going to be, but it's going to be the first look at Scoot Henderson, DeAndre Ayton, Robert Williams, you know, the other rookies, Malcolm Brogdon. It's going to be a first look at kind of the new era of the Blazers actually playing in an NBA game or playing, you know, at least with Blazer uniforms on. I know that they're not playing against an NBA team. Their first game against an actual NBA team is going to be on Thursday against Phoenix, which is going to also be the returns to Portland of uh, Nasir Little and Yusuf Nurkic. So there's that to look forward to. So we're going to have stuff to talk about soon. The podcast, as always, remember, we are part of the Odyssey family. You can get us on the Odyssey app, subscribe, rate, review, get us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, all the usual platforms. Today I've got Ben Golliver, who I'm sure you all know as the former editor of Blazers Edge and now national NBA writer with the Washington Post, been a friend of mine for over a decade, one of the best in the business. He was down with me in Santa Barbara for one of the days last week, and he wrote a great story in the Washington Post, which I'll post a link to in the show notes, about just kind of the you know the whole process of moving on from Damian Lillard and kind of where the Blazers' new era is going and just just kind of a good like big picture national perspective of it so we get to that we get to you know where he sees Scoot Henderson's career going where he kind of sees DeAndre Ayton fitting in we also get into some talk about like what would be the right way to honor Dame this is something that obviously Ben has a lot of strong opinions about we get into that conversation we get into um Dame's fit in Milwaukee also it's a good discussion so we'll we'll get to that now and then you know we'll be back next week after some of the preseason stuff So, Ben, what were your impressions? Just You were only down there for one day with me in Santa Barbara. I was there the whole time. What were you just at coming in as an outsider and kind of parachuting in, but also as somebody who knows this organization quite well and used to cover them on a day-to-day basis and kind of knows some of the history and some of the dynamics? What were your impressions of the one day that you spent of camp? Well, for me, it was a nice jolt of youth, right? I mean, being here in Los Angeles, you got the Lakers, you got the Clippers. Those are very veteran teams. I mean, with stars that are, you know, probably past prime at this point. Uh, covering the Denver Nuggets playoff run or USA basketball over the summer. Again, it's this very kind of experienced and veteran and polished type feel to those teams. And I think with Portland and especially the personality of Scoot Henderson now be- mm-hmm. becoming like the big driving force after the Dame trade, I think there was a lot of excitement from the transition, a lot of hype, you know, kind of building around Scoot Henderson, a little bit like the first day of high school, right, where I feel like everybody's freshman trying to figure out, you know, where's my locker, where's first period, how do I fit in with my new teammates, and that's just something that I haven't had, you know, in in my life on a regular basis here recently, just because of uh, the geographical stuff that I mentioned, so for me, it was, uh, you know, it was a, a jolt of fresh air. I know they're trying to pitch the fresh start stuff really hard there with the Blazers mm-hmm. organization. But, I mean, even just the attention that they were able to command. I mean, Lakers media day, there's just hundreds of people. And they've got to put all the reporters in like this pen, basically, so that they don't get uh, too close and get, you know, behind the scenes photos of LeBron when he's doing his official uh, portraits or anything like that. Right. And you come out to, you know, Santa Barbara, and I think uh, you and, and maybe one other writer were sort of the people down from Portland. And there was a few people with the team and a couple local uh, sports journalists from the school trying to get in on the action. But uh, it was just a very kind of a quiet and subdued scene. And even talking to the students who did show up just to try to get a selfie or an autograph with the players, a lot of them were just like, well, it's kind of a bummer. Dame's not here, but we are, you know, wanting to see Scoot and some of the other young guys. Uh, it just wasn't that same sort of like ultra passion that, you know, maybe you expect at, at other points of a franchise's life cycle. But the Blazers are starting over. They're starting fresh. That's kind of where they're at. 
And it was cool to see some of the diehards out there appreciating that. And obviously it was great to see you down there tracking mm-hmm. every step of the transition. It's always funny when, cause this is the second year that they've done it at UCSB. And that's the first time a team that I've ever covered has done the whole out of town training camp thing, going somewhere else, getting away from kind of the local, which I, which I, from my understanding is a Chauncey thing because back when he played, he always liked it when his teams would, uh, go somewhere else and just you know just just to kind of as do it as like a team bonding thing but it's always funny because the first day when it was just me and one other writer down there there was basically no like nobody on campus like even knew what was going on or (laughs) knew that you know there was an nba team on campus and then the second day which was the day that you were there it was like a whole line. There was all these students that showed up. There was like student, like the student newspaper, I think, had somebody there. Last year, it was totally at a different level because Dame was on the team. And obviously, right. when you have like one of the 10 most famous guys in the league, basically, one of the biggest stars, a guy that's like in TV commercials and stuff all the time, it's a little bit of a different level of attention. But it really does seem like, and maybe this is just because I think people are happy with the way that the trade worked out. There is a lot more positive energy around this team than maybe there would be, you would think, when somebody who was as entrenched as Damian Lillard and somebody who was as beloved here for as long as he was spent the whole summer making it clear that he wanted out and he wanted to be traded and you know wanted to go somewhere else. You would think you'd go into the season with like people being bummed out. Everybody's pretty excited. I think it is a lot of the stuff that you just brought up about it being so much youth and just so much energy and just this new energy. And it's a totally different kind of vibe than the last couple of years. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, first of all, on the crowd size, when I was there on Wednesday, I mean, I, I did think that across the street, there was a longer line of people waiting to get their bike tires repaired at a bike shop. <laughs> and there actually was like, you know, students showing up to see uh, uh, the, the Blazers without Damian Lillard. And the guys who did show up, uh, you know, made it like one of them was from Turkey. And he's like, uh-huh. look, I've been watching NBA basketball since I was seven years old. There's a team on campus. Of, of course, I'm going to be here. And I was like, well, where's everybody else? You know, and I think that they were basically saying, look, people have got class. They got things to do. Uh, the word kind of got around because the Blazers had booked the gym. So anybody who wanted to go in there for like intramural volleyball practice or whatever got booted out by the Blazers, right? Because Chauncey's doing these three and four hour long, you know, uh, marathon training camp session so you know it was sneaking out a little bit but this was not like the Beatles come to town right or this was not like the Golden State Warriors 73 win season where people are showing up hours and hours early and I think um, it's smart for Portland to you know get themselves into this place where they can just bond together because they have a lot of bonding to do I mean you know these going to be even the players who are coming back from last year are going to have different roles in a lot of cases bigger roles right more important roles they're going to be expected to drive winning DeAndre Ayton is starting a second chapter of his career. It's going to be a totally different setup for him than what he dealt with in Phoenix. I can't imagine a bigger transition than going from Chris Paul as your point guard to Scoot Henderson as your point guard in terms of age, experience, style of play, communication style. I mean, all of that's going to be so different. Scoot's got to get his sea legs in the NBA. There's no doubt there. And you've got some other players, you know, they might get traded by the deadline or, you know, or not. We'll see exactly how that shakes out. So, um, you know, I think that's cause for excitement. One benefit of dragging the trade along uh, for as many months as they did over the summer is I do think it helped the fan base kind of get over it, right? Because you have the initial shock of the trade request in July. People start rationalizing, okay, well, he's probably going to be gone. We don't know when. And then everybody hangs out in purgatory for three months. And I imagine that was super annoying for you as somebody who's covering this on a day-to-day basis because you can't check out. You have to track every single rumor and what are they saying to Miami and what are they saying to Toronto or wherever else. And there's literally nothing new to talk about because it's just the same stuff over and over again. We spent the whole summer doing that. Yeah, and that that just turns fans off. I mean, typically, if it drags on and on and on, it it can Uh really have a... A uh, you know a quelling effect on enthusiasm, but once the trade gets done, once they come out of it and get a package that's pretty comparable to that uh, you know Donovan Mitchell trade package between Utah and Cleveland, I think there's a sigh of relief, and then there is like this embrace of the the next era. One of the things I was blown away by Dwayne Hankins, the the president of the Blazers, told me is that their season ticket holder rate is up significantly this year than it was compared to the previous season. It's actually their best uh, you know renewal rate at ninety three percent. Uh, compare you know at any time since the Western Conference Finals run. So 
there is a lot of organic excitement around, you know, just something fresh, not trying to fail to build a winner around Dame and to try to, you know, wrap your mind around a younger and, and more energetic core with a whole bunch of guys that have a lot to prove. Now, my question is this. How long will that optimism last, right? Because this could be a tough season. They could, you know, wind up, um, you know, suffering just a lot of losses because the ball is going to be in the hand of a teenager. And that's a tough formula in the NBA. Uh, But, you know, as Scoop promised, doesn't matter if we're up 20 or down 20. We're going to be playing hard. We might be the underdogs, but we're some real dogs. And as you know, that was a phenomenal quote in your story. Right. Well, and that's the mentality that Blazers fans want more than anything, right? You go back to Jerome Kersey, you go back to a player like Wesley Matthews or Nicholas Batum, like the fan favorites are always the dogs, the high energy type players. And to have arguably your most talented player, at least your highest ceiling player long term, have that kind of mentality too. I think it's going to be a great fit for Scoot in Portland. And I think this fan base is going to be switching those zero jerseys to double zeros pretty quick. Yeah, I was at FanFest yesterday and... There were a couple of people that I saw who had the d- number zero jerseys, like with the you know you know how like you can like like modify it with tape. You see that sometimes there were some that did either either like they had like their double zero Carmelo jerseys from a few years ago, or they had the Lillard jerseys that they taped a second zero onto. So like I guess that's kind of already starting. It was interesting. So you you just brought up Dwayne Hankins, the president of business operations, who has been on the show before and is somebody that I also know quite well, but like. He had, you know, you had some interesting stuff from him in your story, not just the season ticket renewals thing, but also just over the summer, how do they market the team? How do they, you know, do they put Dame on the billboards, even though they know that Dame is probably not going to be there? If they leave him completely out of everything, what is that going to say? Is that going to mess with, like, their trade leverage? You know, it like, it, it, it kind of reminds, like, pe- people who maybe don't, aren't, like, as in the weeds on this stuff every single day as maybe you and I are, as people who do this for a job. All of the business stuff and the basketball stuff, as much as you want to keep them separate, they're pretty intertwined because what one side does kind of affects the other. And, you know, if... You know, they just go super all out with putting just Scoot and Anthony Simons on the billboards and on the season ticket like renewal stuff. Then that's going to maybe make other teams around the league go, well, they aren't even including Dame on this stuff, so they have to trade Dame by training camp. So that maybe is going to affect the offers. Or if they do put Dame on it, then it's like, well, is that you know, are they why are they they're they're trying to get us to buy season tickets when he's probably not going to be on the team. So I'm interested in kind of the sense you got from Dwayne Hankins and from other folks on the Blazers business side and in the front office about how they kind of all work together to navigate that part of it. Well, um, you know, we were talking about purgatory earlier. Nobody's more in purgatory than the team employees who are trying to pitch this organization to a fan base and they don't know what they have to pitch, right? You know, for the last, what, 10 years, uh-huh. Dame was the pitch. As soon as LaMarcus was gone, the pitch is Dame, 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 Dame. I mean, he's, that's the, the benefit of having a franchise player, a guy who's going to get 5,000 people to show up in Milwaukee to a fan rally, a guy who I bet drew a pretty big crowd down in Santa Barbara just last year, right? Like, oh, yeah. it's just a natural, easy sell. You put them on everything. And I'm, I'm sure your listeners remember when they pulled the banner of Dame off of the Moda Center over the summer, right? And there was a lot of back and forth of like, Oh, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? Oh, it's not actually a big deal. They change it every single year. I mean, you could say what you want, but if you feel like Dame is coming back next season, you don't take the banner of Dame off the building. You just don't do that, right? So I think that was the initial step uh, of a summer where they really had to plot two courses. Plan A was Lillard's gone because he's requested a trade. We have to be realistic about that. Uh, Plan B is he does come back in some sort of an awkward scenario, and it's a little bit like Kevin Durant with the Nets where, okay, how long is he going to stay? The clock's kind of ticking, and then maybe he gets traded uh, later down the road. Really, the message that came from even above Dwayne Hankins from owner Jody Allen, and I'm sure Burt Cold was kind of involved in this thinking too, the idea was like, look, this is not a pure rebuild where there's just nobody around and you're going to be starting from scratch if you trade Damian Lillard. There are enough pieces, whether it's Simons, whether it's grabbing Scoot Henderson with the number three pick, whether it's if you can grab a DeAndre Ayton so you can plug and play a starting caliber center in these trades. Like, you're not going to be at rock bottom. This isn't going to be the Houston Rockets after the James Harden trade, right? Or so, Washington. you know, basically, right, or, or the Wizards, you know, after some, you know, losing, uh, you know, Wall and Beal in, in kind of short order, right? So the message from Jody Allen was like, look, there's going to be life after Dame. We have to just bite the bullet and do this. It's time to move on. 
I think a lot of their messaging, you know, from the business side was we went through this with the Seattle uh, Seahawks and the NFL, Jody Allen's other team. They had this long protracted kind of ugly and and sad, uh, you know, parting with, with Russell Wilson, their longtime QB who won a Super Bowl and everything else, super famous, dating, you know, or married to Sierra, everything else. So, you know, I guess they had a proof point that you can move on. Life will continue. The Seahawks actually improved their record in the first year without Russell Wilson. And so it's okay to take the plunge in and just, you know, start planning for sure that Dame won't be there. And that's what the the business side did. I mean, basically elevate the young players, try to get people to re-engage with the notion of Rip City and the team's proud history, to understand that there are eras. And I think the other really big aspect to their plan was to take the high road when it came to Lillard pretty thoroughly. And uh-huh. you've been at probably all of Joe Cronin's, you know, press conferences and everything over the last month. So you could probably even speak to this more than I can. But, I mean, coming out on media day, in, immediately he's thanking Damian Lillard. In my story, Dwayne Hankins is talking about, do we need to have a statue out front of the Moda Center uh, to honor Damian Lillard because the Blazers have retired so many numbers and Lillard may be as deserving as the franchise's all-time leading scorer, one of its most popular players ever. Maybe he's deserving of a greater honor than just a retired number. So I think there was a real commitment to trying to end things on the right note with Lillard and to just land the plane with the trade, you know. And Jody Allen and Burt Cold and, and Joe Cronin started from the beginning in terms of taking a very patient approach with the actual negotiations and they landed the plane right on schedule. They got the trade done, you know, just a few days before media day, I think just like they had planned. And they were able to bring everybody together in Santa Barbara. And now for the preseason, uh, again, right on schedule with enough time to sort of get your strategies together before the season starts later this month. So I think all things considered, Portland's had a, a tough three or four years as a franchise, but I feel like this summer was pretty well executed, uh, both on the business side and the basketball side. I don't know if they left anything on the table from like a process or a logistics standpoint, right? And I think the thing that really helped with that, and I'd be curious your thoughts here as kind of more of a national guy who look, you know, looks at everything kind of more from a, a bigger lens than maybe I do being like in the weeds day to day. They got really lucky. And I, you know, I don't necessarily like I, I, I'm sure I, th- you know, I think there are people that I respect who have watched a lot more college basketball than I do that think that Brandon Miller is going to be a perfectly fine NBA player, but Charlotte being the team that moved up to two out of all the teams that could have moved up to two was a huge just break that the Blazers caught just in just in terms of if you're talking about how do you get people excited you know locally about the next chapter when you move on from somebody like Dame like Scoot I was just I don't know if you saw the video that I posted yesterday from FanFest of um Scoot singing the Mary J. Blige song as part of the rookie hazing. And he was just owning it. He was just leaning fully <laughs> into it and just like he was he was not like like he just whatever whatever you want to say, like the it factor or the star factor or the X factor, whatever you want to call it, he's got whatever that whatever the juice is. Like he has that and I know you talked to him for a little bit for the story that you wrote in the post the other day. Was that the first time you'd ever like talked to him? Or because I remember you covered the Wemby Scoot games in Vegas about a year ago. Was that mostly Wemby stuff that you were doing? Did you have you had you ever gotten a chance to talk to Scoot or be around Scoot before uh, this week in Santa Barbara? I mean, it was my most extended one-on-one time with Scoot. I'd seen him two previous times, or actually, I guess three times. The two Wemby uh, showcase games uh, in Henderson, Nevada, where you know they're basically playing the G League versus the Mets '92, and mm-hmm. Scoot played really well in the first one of that. Before I, I think he might have been minorly injured in the second one if I'm recalling correctly but I also saw him during the the draft process and draft week in New York City and the Lillard stuff was already buzzing by that point I'm mean, actually, actually a guy showed up on draft night with a jersey that said trade dame I like remember a custom that. jersey and I was like that jolted me you know because obviously you know it's it hasn't gone very well these last couple of years but it's like wow people are actually turning on dame they think there's a better path um you know and that guy <laughs> proved to be right I mean it, it worked out pretty well for uh, somebody in that camp it also worked out really well for Scoot. I mean, there's been a maturity there since the first time I saw him more than a year ago. It's still there. The charisma and confidence that you're describing from FanFest reminds me a lot of a young Lillard. You know, he comes in uh, a lot older than Scoot did after being at Weber State for so long, but he was ready and polished to go from day one. He knew, you know, just kind of that internal self-assuredness. I think both those players share that, and, and Portland needs that. And Portland will uh, latch onto that, I think, pretty quickly with Scoot. 
even though I do think it's going to be kind of bumpy. You know, I mean, there's going to be turnover issues. There's probably going to be some, you know, just getting comfortable with how the professional teams defend him as the season unfolds. He was already talking about, you know, being prepared mentally and physically really for the rookie wall as something that he wanted to make sure that, you know, uh, he was already thinking about in terms of taking care of his body and pacing himself and those kinds of things. So, you don't usually hear rookies, you know, already pl- plotting things out with such care. And that's who Scoot is because he's been a pro for two years with the G League. The other thing I love, too, is he flat out said, hey, the, the rookie of the year is very possible. Right. It's like and that's what he goes back to his conversation with Wemby and, and Henderson in terms of his message at that time was like, don't count me out for the number one pick. And, you know, it's not a little delusional because everybody's watching this like seven foot five alien right. drain <laughs> one legged three pointers. But uh, the true competitors, you know, the guys who have the chance to be franchise level point guards aren't going to just go around and be like, oh, yeah, I, I want to be number two. I want to be you know, drafted after right. Wemby. And, uh, you know, the I love the idea of Michael Jordan, you know, karmically repaying the Blazers. You know, he, he doesn't go to Portland because they take Bowie and he just maybe hands scoot to Portland, uh, you know, rather than uh, Brandon Miller. I, I, th- I do think it worked out quite well. And I remember actually Joe, Joe Cronin at the NBA draft lottery drawing in Chicago. Um, and this goes back to this idea of, you know, are you number one or number two, whatever, Scoot versus Wemby. And Portland moved up to third, but they were only one number on one ping yeah. pong ball, the last ping pong ball. Yeah, you and I from, were both in the room together, yeah. Right, from getting the number one pick. And so I, I don't know if you remember this, but I went over and I asked Cronin afterwards. I was like, what's the feeling? Are you excited that you moved up? Or is there a disappointment like, oh, shucks, you just barely missed out on Wemby, who's going to change whatever franchise he goes to and be this like potential billion dollar commodity. And he had like the biggest, most genuine smile on his face. Mm-hmm. He was so happy that yeah. they had moved up. And I think at that point, the thought was still maybe they would try to trade the number three pick. That was the conventional wisdom. But he made the right decision not to trade it. He made the right decision to take Scoot. He made the right decision to kind of call Damien's bluff. Blame uh, Damien made the right decision for himself by requesting the trade. And I think it all just played out exactly how it was supposed to play out. So, um, you know, Scoot, big shoes to fill. But I can't really imagine any teenage point guard more ready to fill them. I don't think Scoot winning Rookie of the Year is crazy. Like, I would still probably have Wemby as the favorite just because I think Wemby's going to come into the NBA and be a top 10 defensive player in the league like from day one. But... Scoot is the type of player, like like that type of point guard that's going to have a lot of attention, and if he's as good as people, like I think there is a chance that like let's say Wemby gets load managed in San Antonio or some of that or doesn't play enough, like I think it's within the realm of possibility that Scoot maybe has the, in the same way that like when Dame won Rookie of the Year, mm-hmm. I don't think anybody disagreed that Anthony Davis was the rightful number one pick or that he was going to be the better player long term, but it's just, it's harder for big men to adjust to the NBA than it is for point guards, so... I could see a world where Scoot, but... Harder for them to stay on the court, too. And that was the issue for AD in his rookie year as he played 50-something games, I think, and Dame was just out there every single night getting numbers. And I think that it's a totally valid comparison. We'll see. Chet might have something to say about it. There could be some other guys who sneak up into that conversation. But um, I do think nationally people are sleeping on Scoot. Chad, I think, is a little like, but I think because Chad is coming off of a foot injury, I think there is definitely going to be some, you know, Oklahoma City being careful with him. I don't know if he's going to play enough games to get it. Where do you land on DeAndre Ayton, who's somebody that you also talked about and to quite a bit in your story? And, you know, as a, as a loyal listener of the GOAT, which everybody go subscribe to the greatest of all talk, I've, you know, I've been a day one listener. You've historically not been a huge Ayton guy. And, that was a piece of the trade where I think everybody agrees that he's an upgrade over Yusuf Nurkic, but it's like there are people who think maybe that isn't the home run, like, oh, they've got their franchise center now that that, that maybe was kind of the way that it's, that it's being sold. Where do you kind of land after talking to him, after talking to people about him and just kind of the way that he's been taking to Blazers training camp? Where do you kind of land on you know that that piece of the deal and that piece of kind of this retooling of the summer? I think when you do these kinds of superstar trades, you know, a lot of times they get judged not necessarily on the total number of draft picks. That's like the initial excitement from the dorks on Twitter, right? Or the dorks on X who are like, oh, five first round picks, six pick swaps or whatever it might be. I think in Portland's case, it was maybe three first round picks and two pick swaps total, right? right? But it's usually about the number one centerpiece player that comes back. 
And in some recent trades, I mean, Brandon Ingram going to New Orleans, right? Or Lonzo Ball, depending on how you, you know, viewed right. those guys. Um, Mikhail Bridges going to Brooklyn. Um, you could look at uh, Lowry Markkinen going to Utah and that just being a home run. And with Aiton, I'm just not sure he's going to be as valuable as any of those centerpiece players. And so that's a high bar because those are really good players that are kind of getting traded in these deals. Um, and, and Lillard might not be on that KD level or that AD level in terms of trade value. I think Aiton's, you know, first of all, his immediate goal was, you know, helped, helped win the press conference for Cronin because you're getting a, somebody, a former number one pick, puts up big numbers, probably will go for 2010 this year. He's going to be... Uh, on the court a lot, playing big minutes, you know, stuffing the stat sheet, maybe even making a case for All-Star. I think that really helps the transition and, and keep people invested in the idea of Portland's not just trying to tear it down and make things ugly. They want to have a chance, right? So it really helps in the short term. But you're going to judge Aiton more on his longer-term impact on winning. And, you know, he said all the right things. When I was talking to him in Santa Barbara, he didn't uh, – necessarily seemed really excited to do the interview i think you guys maybe talked him out the previous day so he wasn't uh he wasn't like super ready to go back to back for the the media sessions with me but you know his two messages were i want to be somewhere i'm wanted and that's portland after the phoenix situation right and the other message was no more excuses right so you can look at the sun's era and say he kind of quit two years ago in the playoffs didn't want to go back in the game you can look at the last uh, you know postseason run in, in 23 where he doesn't play the final game of the series against denver because Jokic is just killing him and he's got some sort of a rib injury and so it's kind of two very flat endings back to back for ayton uh, but you can also say this guy's been marginalized as a third or fourth option his entire career and that's not going to be in the case in portland he's going to get more shots more touches and he's going to have the chance to do uh you know, a much bigger offensive role. And look, he's been part of top 10 defenses the last three years. And I think Portland has been a bottom five defense the last four or five years. So there should be some level of improvement by, you know, improving your backline defender. But the things that hold me back about Aiton, um, there's no stretch to his offensive game. So he's not shooting three pointers. And then he's had more turnovers than assists every single year uh, in his NBA career. And so that tells me, you know, the best modern big men, can make plays for their teammates and they're really comfortable on the perimeter and offensively Aiden's kind of over two in those categories so yes he's going to be able to shoot mid-range jumpers but I would love unfortunately he just doesn't attack the rim a ton he's a good finisher on lobs and dump off passes but he is not this like forceful paint presence always just like in you know, a pounding teams uh, he, he could get to the free throw line more often as well so those are some of my hang-ups in terms of why I'm not the world's biggest Aiden fan but I think it was a very practical piece to put into this trade package for Portland. And that also helped them get rid of Nurkic's contract, which uh, was a minor win that really got overlooked, I think, nationally in terms of, uh, you know, his injury history and, and kind of how the last couple of years have gone for Portland and how he would have held up without Dame. Like, I don't think Nurkic would have been very happy, uh, you know, with, uh, with Scoot and a bunch of young guys at the helm, right? I think he's trying to compete for something at this stage of his career, and so I think that was a, a logical trade to make, and, and you got off of his number just in case these injury issues continue. What do you make of the Celtics part of it, the, the Robert Williams, Malcolm Brogdon part of it? The day that you were at camp was the day that those two got there and passed their physicals and talked to us for the first time. But, I mean, I know you've covered a lot of these playoff series in the finals over the last couple of years. I know Brogdon was only there last year, but, like, you you know, you saw the kind of the impact that Robert Williams has defensively on – the Celtics over the last few years on this kind of run that they've been on, where, where, where do you kind of see those guys fitting in? Well, they're going to force some choices for Chauncey. I mean, that's what it really comes down to is like, yeah. how much does he want to win? And does he want to come out of the gate really trying to win? And then maybe if it doesn't go great, then you could just turn it over to all the young guys down the road. But Brockton's a starting caliber point guard. He won six man of the year last year. He's rock solid when he's healthy. Now he had some injury issues in last year's playoffs, but he had a really nice year for Boston, and he's had a number of good years over the last three or four years, especially when his body has been right. So I guess the benefit of being in Portland is you can manage his minutes because you're not necessarily chasing victories. But uh, right now, he's probably a better point guard than Scoot, right? If you're just saying, like, which one of those guys would you point out there? But of course, he's not going to be the higher priority than Scoot. With Robert Williams, uh, you know, the, the biggest question is he went through a very Brandon Roy-like knee injury and surgery situation where he rushed back for a postseason like Roy did 
And unfortunately, that was kind of a turning point in Roy's career. And we're still waiting to see if it's going to be a turning point for Robert Williams. Is he going to be able to get back where he can play 75 games a season? Or did just the way the whole knee injury played out kind of alter his career trajectory and lower his ceiling? But an incredibly athletic front court defender, great help side shot blocker. Um, he's the kind of guy, like kind of an air traffic controller, right? So he's just going to be pouncing and swatting and, um, and you know, a, a positive personality that people really like and, and fit in well with the rest of uh, Boston's core group. So I know a lot of Celtics fans were sad to see him go. Um, you know, I think from Portland's standpoint, in that trade, you're really going for the draft picks, but Brogdon and, and Williams are not throw-in players, right? Like, these right. are not guys who are just, like, afterthoughts. These are, like, legitimate NBA talents. Brogdon's going to be in my top 100 list this year. Uh, Robert Williams has been on that list before. The injury issues, uh, you know, and the questions there will keep him off this year. But these are guys, if you give big minutes, you can expect them to contribute to wins, no question. How th- this is this is the part of it that I'm still kind of wrestling with as far as you know how what how to set expectations for the season because as you mentioned, all three of the guys that they really got back. I mean, Tumani Kamara is the rookie from Phoenix, so there's been a lot of buzz about him, but you know you can't really expect any rookie to have like a heavy impact. But those other three guys, Robert Williams, Malcolm Brogdon, and uh, DeAndre Ayton, those three, you know whatever flaws they may have as far as health stuff or some of the effort stuff with Ayton. Those are all legitimate NBA players and are proven rotation players. And so you look at Portland's uh, basically eight-man rotation at this point. You know, Scoot's a rookie, but people think he's pretty advanced. Shaden Sharp, you know, put, started to put some stuff together the second half of last year, but he's kind of a question mark. Everybody else in the rotation, though, is like, you know, Anthony Simons, proven NBA rotation player. Jeremy Grant, proven NBA rotation player. Matisse Thibel, proven NBA rotation player. They don't have the top-end talent, obviously, to be able to really contend in the West, but they have enough depth. They have, like, an eight- or nine-man rotation of actual proven NBA depth that makes me think this might not be a 20-win team. We might be talking about maybe, like, high 20s, low 30s, and maybe until the end, until the last month of the season being, like, kind of in the Utah-Oklahoma City zone where people were maybe... They win more games than people expect, and people think, oh, they might actually be a play-in team before it kind of tails off towards the end of the year. Where do you kind of see them in the West? No, I think that ESPN's win projection had them at 32, so that's going along with really what you're saying or maybe what you're expecting. It's a little Uh, higher than I personally go, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, but you're saying like high 20s, low 30s is like the ballpark, right? And so, yeah, they're, they're kind of in that mix. Now, they may be projecting more minutes for the... Brogdon's and Williams of the world, then they might wind up playing once the season's over if there's trades at the deadline. I think, you know, for Portland, the last couple of years, you know, it's pretty ugly in March and April. I think you and Danny Morang were starting in the backcourt down the stretch of last season, you know, <laughs> yeah. trying to make sure you could help that scoop pit come along. Might as right? well I mean, have been, yeah. Yeah, it was getting pretty dark there. They're not going to need to do that this year because they're going to have the ability to just very naturally coast into a good draft position because they have so many young key pieces, right? So I think that they'll probably start off, if I'm reading the temperature right, doing whatever they can to have a good start to the season, build a positive culture, play super fast, you know, try to make Portland a tough place for opponents to play where if you rest a star in Portland, you might lose because they're just going to try to blitz you off the court uh, with their athleticism, right? And really see what Aiton can do as a leading option. Then once you get to February, you've got a bunch of pieces you could potentially flip, right? I mean, those are some pieces that, you know, I could easily see contending teams being interested in picking up. And then at that point, you lean even more heavily on the young guys who are going to start the season with big roles. I mean, I think you've got to carve out a lot of minutes for uh, Simon Sharp and Scoot from day one. But you can just give them the car keys completely down the stretch. And I don't think you have to worry about too much about those guys over-delivering wins in March and April. So I think it's going to be a very natural uh, tank towards the end of the season where maybe uh, it winds up being longer losing streaks, but at least it's more fun than these last couple of years. And it ultimately accomplishes an organizational goal, which to me should still be get the absolute best draft picks you can get because there's a lot of parity in the Western Conference. There's a lot of teams that have motivation to win this year. And Portland, you could argue, in the West – has less motivation than anybody to win, right? Because, you know, it's year one after Lillard. You get a honeymoon period. Scoot's a rookie. 
you know, Houston, like they're going to be bad, but they've been bad for three or four years. They got to win this year. Uh, San Antonio probably won't be good either, but you know, the spotlight's going to be on Wemby. So it might be a little bit harder for them to engage in the kind of hijinks maybe that, that they have in some previous seasons in terms of shutting down players. And then just about everybody else is either trying to get into the play-in mix because they weren't in last year, or they're trying to hang on to a playoff spot, right? So that, that to me creates a market opportunity for Portland where being really bad could be very good for their long-term um, fate. And we'll see if they see it the same way. And, and they don't. the key thing is they don't need to really make a call until like February, right? Because they have a lot of flexibility to kind of you know, trade off two or three pieces here and there. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're right back to the, the bottom and, and playing for that number one pick. Are you a Cooper flag guy looking ahead to 25 oh, yeah. at all? But oh, because yeah. you, you, you first came to prominence in the NBA media world with draft Kevin Durant dot blogspot.com. And then yeah. you were, you were driving the Chet Holmgren train. You were driving the Wemby train, obviously. Is Cooper flag the goal here? Is that going to be the, is that Portland's long-term uh, uh, vision? I mean, dude, like you could do a lot worse, you know, as a headlining tandem than Scoot and Cooper Flag. I mean, if you want to just like own ball is life internet, you know, <laughs> like you know, just be the, the ball is life all stars, you know, you bring in Cooper Flag. He's a really, really, really interesting player. He's still a couple of years away, I think, from being draft eligible. Yeah, and, you know, he's 25. Yeah. What, one thing with the new salary cap rules, I think we should point out Portland's going to be a great test case for these salary cap rules, right? So, basically they make the harder cap so that it's much harder to aggregate superstar talent on the same team. And if you do aggregate superstar talent, you're going to lose depth. And so you have to kind of face these choices. So Phoenix faces that choice. And part of their motivation to trade Aiton is to get off that big fourth contract because they already have three stars and to turn him into multiple rotation players, right? So that plays to Portland's benefit because they get an above average starting center for not all that much in return in that trade. Those kinds of trades are going to keep happening, right? There's going to keep being teams that are towards the top that are going to be forced to making those types of deals. So for Portland, salary cap flexibility could be huge in terms of being able to get some of these unbalanced trades where you're taking in more talent uh, than you're giving up. I also think what we're going to see happen as this parity era unfolds is that the length of rebuilds are going to wind up shortening because the bar to get back into the playoffs has been lowered by the play-in tournament. But it's also been lowered because of, you know, the salary cap rules, which prevent teams from kind of buying their way into the playoffs, right? So, for example, we could see a scenario in, say, three years where the Clippers, because they're so loaded up with the contracts that they've taken on with these old guys and, you know, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George and everything else, maybe they're not in the playoff picture anymore. A spot opens up and maybe a team like Portland makes a couple of small deals, you know, that are favorable because teams are trying to unload salary. They hit a couple of draft picks. And all of a sudden, they're back into that play-in mix or that playoff mix in two to three years rather than five or six years like we've seen with the Detroit Pistons or the Houston Rockets in the past because, uh, you know, it's just a, a more fluid uh, track between playoff team and, you know, just also ran or, or bottom dweller. And that doesn't mean Portland's going to be in contention anytime soon. I think trying to build yourself into a contender could take just as long as ever because so much of that is about luck and getting the right player, grabbing a Cooper flag and building around that guy for 10 years, right? But I think for, for Blazers fans, the kind of the national storyline of parity and harder cap plays to their benefit as they enter this, uh, this rebuilding effort. Last thing, looking at the other side of the trade, where what are your you know as as a as the executive of Giannis Inc. What are you what are your thoughts on the Dame Giannis pairing in Milwaukee? Well, what do you think, man? Because you've watched Dame probably more than just about anybody. Um, it feels like a really good fit for him, but they've got questions like, what are you? I'm worried expecting? about. I'm worried about Middleton. I'm worried about Lopez health wise. That's okay. that's that's the thing that I think is going to hold them back, if anything. Well, do they still have enough if it's Giannis and Dame versus the world? You know, like let's say Middleton misses 40 games and Lopez misses 20 games. Is that duo so powerful that they could still be a top three or four seed in the East despite, you know, depth concerns even past the number three and four guy? Like it's a pretty juicy pairing, right? It is. I, I, I think they can still be a top seed even if, they, if those guys miss time just because you look at the rest of the East, it's like Boston's going to be up there, but it's like, Philly has all these question marks with Harden. Miami obviously took a step back. Like, you looked up and down the roster, like, there's still question marks with Cleveland. Like, Jared Allen is already hurt. Like, you don't really know what's going on with, you know, Toronto. Are they going to try to 
get back in the mix or what or what's like I still feel like even if you know some of the supporting guys in Milwaukee miss some time or you know Brooke Lopez doesn't have another career year at age 36 or whatever he is Dame and Giannis together is going to be pretty unguardable at least in the yeah, regular I mean, season like they, the, the depth I think is going to come more into play in the playoffs but that's uh I th- I, th- I think th- I mean I think they're going to be pretty good. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think the depth will be a bigger issue in the playoffs because maybe they don't have the versatility to go from matchup to matchup and and handle things as well as they would hope. If you've got like nine guys you can count on, you can play against almost anybody. And I think with Milwaukee, it's more like you got four, maybe five guys that you really feel good about. And then if one of those guys is injured, it's a totally different equation. But I think Dame's going to have a great season this year, mostly because he's going from the Western Conference to the Eastern Conference. I think he's going to be the East's best point guard. If you look on paper, that's just kind of how he stacks up. I think the Mitchell trade is actually a really good comparison. He goes from Utah to Cleveland, and then boom, it's like all NBA, huge scoring number. They're you know, a home court team in the playoffs and all those kinds of things. And I think Lillard can have that kind of transition. And to me, what I, what I love about the trade from Lillard's standpoint is how many years did you guys and Blazers Edge and the Oregon Live try to concoct trade scenarios where he would get to have some front court defensive pieces that could really cover up for his weaknesses, uh, replace Lamarcus Aldridge after you know he goes to San Antonio, and just give him some real help in the three four five spot? And you look at Milwaukee when healthy arguably the best three, four, five combination, you know, whether it's two-way play or offense, defense, whatever in the entire league for a player like Lillard, he could not ask for kind of better protection behind him than Middleton, Giannis and Lopez. And you could really argue, I mean, Dame spent months saying that he wanted to play with Bam. I know he's done interviews saying earlier, uh, you know, in the past that he would love to play with Giannis as well. And people have imagined him like, you know, photoshopped him to the Lakers, right? And it's like, imagine if he had uh, Anthony Davis behind him, but it's going to be a real deal when he's got Giannis back there, an MVP certified multiple time MVP player cleaning stuff up. It's just going to make his life so much easier. It's going to be such a, a synergistic relationship, not quite on the same tier, I would say as like a Curry and a Draymond Green, but a similar deal where they're really making each other better, you know, enhancing each other's strengths and covering up for each other's weaknesses. So I'm super excited to see how it plays out. Um, they're not a team you write in. You know, I, I do think their margin for error is smaller than a lot of people think just because of the injuries and the age concerns that you've uh, rightly raised. But I think they're going to be a lot more fun to watch. They're going to be a lot more relevant. They're going to be on national TV way more and it's such a great opportunity for Damian Lillard, I think, to, to raise his star power even more. You know, this is a much bigger platform and stage. Even though Milwaukee's still a small market, playing with Giannis, being one of the it teams, being one of the contenders that everybody's got circled on their calendar, where every single game they play matters, this is something that Lillard just has not experienced during his NBA career. It's sort of what he wanted. And, you know, I want to see him deliver and, and make the most of it. You know who's the real winner of that trade is Terry Stotts. Yeah. Got oh, yeah. hired right. earlier in the summer as an assistant coach in Milwaukee. Now he's, you know, he Maybe gets he to, he gets Damon Giannis, uh, and he doesn't have, he's not a head coach, so he doesn't have to deal with like doing media or dealing with us or any of that. He, he hasn't, he hasn't made right now. He's, he's, he's in a great spot. Well, it's a great point. And also Dame has it made because that's when he was at his best. When yeah. Stotts was the one designing the offense, Stotts knows exactly how to use him. I think four times during Lillard's tenure in Portland, he led top five offenses. And at sometimes I think they were as high as like one, two or three at that mm-hmm. point. So that's an incredible track record. It's what Milwaukee needs after being pretty average or even below average at times in last year in terms of offensive efficiency. Um, I think Stotts was a really smart, smart hire. We got questions about Adrian Griffin. Is he going to be able to be like a Darvin Ham and come in and really rally the troops and get them on a, you know, back on a deep playoff run? Or is there going to be an adjustment period? You never know with a first-time coach, but um, I do have a lot of faith that Lillard's going to find his comfort zone real quick. He's going to fit like a glove with Giannis, and their offense is going to be so much more enjoyable than it's been really since the title run. You know, it kind of fell off after that 21 title run. Yeah. So everybody go read Ben's uh, story in the Washington Post about kind of the Blazers post-Lillard you know, rebuild and just kind of how they approach this summer. I thought you did a really good job of kind of laying everything out and kind of exploring all the angles of it. You mentioned the top 100 players. When's that coming out? 
Um, that'll be out opening night, you know, or, or opening day, kind of probably that week. So we still mm-hmm. got a little bit more time on that. But I wanted to ask you two questions quickly, if I could. Go for it. First, what did you make of Joe Cronin's response when I asked about him not getting thanked in Lillard's newsletter? He said something along the lines of, uh, I wasn't one to be thanked at that moment. Like, what did you, you just think of that response? And then second question would be, are you pro-statue or anti-statue? It felt like maybe that issue was like a little bit too early based on some of my Twitter replies. You know, people are like, <laughs> what? you know, uh, not necessarily in the, the mood to honor Lillard at this moment, but like big picture long term, would you do it if you were the Blazers? So to answer your first question, I think the whole time, at least publicly, going back to the trade request, I think Joe has handled this stuff publicly about as well as you could have like I remember that press conference that you and I were both at in Las Vegas which was like 10 days after the trade request and he said you know look we're gonna make the best deal for the franchise where he basically said he didn't say the name of the team but he basically said I'm not gonna get bullied into taking what I think is a subpar package from Miami that's the right approach to take publicly and yeah like I think Joe and I know Joe very well I'd say at this point I've been covering the team now the whole time that he's been the general manager, which is over two, almost two years now since Neil Olshay got fired. But Joe is a very self-aware guy. Joe doesn't think he's perfect and doesn't think he can do no wrong. And so I thought that response of his was pretty on brand with the kind of stuff. You know, at that press conference in July, he said, I think I failed Dame in building around him. Yeah. So it's kind of the response that I expected. And I think he understood. Because like, I, I read that thank you letter. And I noticed even before the, because the Chris Haynes story went up like basically at the same time as the thank you letter, but it went up like two minutes later. But I read the was reading the thank you letter right when it got posted, and I noticed then that Joe was not thanked in it. And then I saw the oh, Chris Haynes story, and course. it's like, well, okay, this is there's clearly a lot of stuff here that you we we had all kind of been able to put together over the summer. But I think Joe understands that, like, yeah, there's a. I mean, it's just like you know when you break up with your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever the case may be that you'd been with for a long time and you know maybe both sides feel like you know the other side did something wrong or maybe there's validity to both sides in this case I think and I have written you know that I think both Joe and Dame could have handled some things differently and I think Joe kind of understands that the price of doing what he felt was right for the franchise long term and doing what that what he felt was his job in that way Maybe the cost of that is you're not going to get thanked in the thank you letter, and that's just something you're right. going to— I think he and Dame are going to be fine long-term. I think in a couple of years, like, if Dame gets a title in Milwaukee and Joe has, like, the Blazers roster to the place where people are talking about them as, like, oh, they're the new Oklahoma City. They're the up-and-coming league pass darlings. I think they're both going to be able to get past it uh, pretty quickly. Now, as far as the statue thing— I always find it weird to talk about that kind of stuff while a guy is still playing. Mm-hmm. But it's also like the three guys, if you want to talk about like best blazer ever, the three guys that you have to put in that discussion are are Walton, Clyde, and uh, Dane. And Clyde has the street named after him by the arena, Drexler Drive. So they've done Which that for one him. One of the greatest but, street names of all time. It I mean, is. It's, a- it's phenomenal. But like... And then, like, Walton, like, I get, I guess they haven't really done, like, the thing for Walton in that way where, like, you know, because, you know, he was only with them for such a short time. I know he won MVP and, you know, won a championship with the Blazers, but, like... Well, they weren't on speaking terms for, like, 20 years. That's the thing. Like, that was... And that's the thing. Like, I wrote a couple of stories that I wrote over the summer. I, you know, I went back and looked at, like, the media coverage of the Bill Walton trade request and of the Clyde Drexler trade request... Both of those were a lot uglier and a lot more public than this was, than this Dame thing was. So, you know, if they want to build a statue for Dame, like, you look at some of the numbers they have retired where it's, like, a lot of just, like, guys who were on the 77 team but probably no other franchise was going to retire their number. I think the more interesting thing is, is this going to be the year that they do Brandon Roy's number? Because they kind of reopened the door by having him be the lottery rep. And I think I tweeted something about it like, right when they announced he was going to be the lottery rep, and Burt Cole, who's the vice chair of Vulcan, who's, you know, basically the de facto owner of the team, along with Jody Allen, liked my tweet, like, about how maybe they're going to... And he could have just been scrolling through liking tweets. I don't know. That's not, like, a binding, like, statement. But I don't know. Like, I, I know you were there for the whole Roy era, so that's, like, a obviously, like, something you were very close to. Like, where do, where do you land on that? 
Well, it's, it's past time. I mean, I would love to see his jersey retired. He's so deserving, you know, just an incredible person, incredible icon for the organization. So beloved. I mean, look, he's not going to be in the in the conversation with Drexler and Dame just from the longevity standpoint as right. the best player ever. But he is in the conversation if you had to give a guy the ball one possession, you know, to, to go win a playoff game. You know, is it him, Dame, or Clyde? I mean, that's you can argue that. And, and Dame might with the the two signature three-point shots might be the right answer now, you know, just based on his mm-hmm. clutch reputation. But, at le- you know, Roy is in that in that conversation. Definitely deserves his jersey to be retired. Almost any time I see the Blazers executives, I kind of prod him a little bit. It's like, guys, it's time, you know. And that was another one of my early campaigns at Blazers Edge was to get Terry Porter's jersey retired. We had, like, an international honor Terry Porter campaign where we had fans from all over the world send in their Terry Porter memories and, the Blazers did the right thing and, and honored him a couple of years after we did that, which was great to see. Um, it's time for B-Roy, there's no doubt. I just think, you know, the, on the statue point, in terms of signature images of the Blazers, the wave from Lillard would make such a good statue. And you could just see fans standing outside of that building doing the little wave, you know, uh-huh. to the Oklahoma City Thunder as they stand next to the wave statue. It's like... That feels like such a no-brainer to me. It's so easy. And, like, I understand, okay, well, if you make one for Dame, do you have to do one with Walton holding the trophy or, you know, Drexler doing one of those, uh, you know, finger rolls that he used to unleash or maybe a dunk contest pose or something like that for Drexler. But uh, the wave, it's like if you're saying, like, just snapshot moments of Blazers history that everybody will remember, that's so high up the list, right? And it would just be – like if you're just you're trying to you know give ideas to a a statue creator, right? That's like you don't really have to have a brainstorming session. You know, it's just like this is what we want. It's obvious. It's like self evident. You know, like how they just like they had when the when the Mavericks just put the one up of Dirk. Like it was obvious right. that it was going to be the one legged fadeaway. Like you yes. didn't have to. Yeah. And if it wasn't, it would have been offensive, right? It's like why is he not doing the fadeaway? We want the fadeaway. We know him for the fadeaway. It's the same thing with Dame. So. Um, that's why I think it makes so much sense. But look, you got plenty of time to sort that out. And, you know, ultimately Drexler retired and he was a blazer, but he also was a rocket because he won the title and he's from Houston and, you know, him and Akeem had such a good relationship. So we'll see how things play out for Lillard in Milwaukee. If he wins a title there, it's going to change the story for Portland. But I would hope that everybody, like you were saying earlier, cooler heads prevail. Uh, you know, Dame can recognize the blazers tried to take the high road during the exit uh, at some point, I think, you know, he should have acknowledged the current Blazers regime for trading him to Milwaukee because it was really in uh, his best interest, even though it wasn't at the top of his list. And I think he probably should have acknowledged Cronin in that letter. But uh, there's plenty of time to sort all that out and, and plenty of time to get the statue under creation. Yeah, for sure. Well, Ben, thanks for coming on with me, as always. Everybody, go read Ben's stuff in the Washington Post. Go subscribe to the goat. Subscribe to the greatest of all talk. It's the best. I you you know I'm a day one goat. Uh, yeah, it's the best NBA podcast out there in my opinion. You and Sharp do a do a great job. I I you know I can't recommend it highly enough. Go do that. Uh, anything else you got? No, I mean WashingtonPost.com/sports for all the season preview stories. And it's great to chat with you. And it's awesome to see you're becoming the Blazer guy, man. How's it feel? Uh, we'll see how the year goes. It's a lot more, it's a lot more, I I feel a lot better now than I felt, you know, having to deal, like, this is a lot more fun than just, uh, you know, going on the show, and it's like, I guess we're, we have to do an episode this week, and I guess we have to talk about the Dame stuff, even though there's nothing new that's happened, and then, you know, everything I say is gonna get clipped by, you know, the people in Miami, because I may have said, it's, like, I feel a lot, just, I feel a lot less stressed out about just the day-to-day stuff with the, with the job now than I did over the summer. So. Well, that makes sense. I hope Scoot gives you a great run this year, and we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. We'll see. Ben, thanks for doing this. Oh, yeah. My pleasure, man. Take care. Yeah.